We have an update on the Dragonlance pre-order refund situation. I'm going to do a Kickstarter spotlight of Horror at Devil's Run by Jeff Stevens and Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim by the Dungeon Dudes. And then we're going to do a deep dive into the Spelljammer, Adventures in Space, box set, slipcase set of books. And we're going to cover some Patreon questions all today on the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm your pal, Mike Shea from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. If you like this show, you can help me out by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive products, adventures, city source books, guides to help you run your game, a dedicated Discord channel, a monthly Patreon Q&A, but most of all, they helping me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Last week, there are all the huge announcements about all the different things that Wizards of the Coast is doing. And one of the things that they did is they put out a whole big splash about the Dragonlance thing that came out. And one of the things they offered was a special edition box set that included the board game and the manual with a special cover and the D&D Beyond codes all available on the Wizards of the Coast website. I jumped on it thinking that I was going to be getting the Lord Soth cover. There's a special edition Lord Soth cover and I've loved Lord Soth since I was 13. So I was very excited to get that cover. I don't know if that joke is going to keep holding on, but we're going to keep going with it. And I pre-ordered it and it turned out it didn't have that cover, it had a different cover. And I was like, okay, I'll cancel the pre-order. And I tried to cancel and I wasn't able to. I did a little bit of work trying to get a refund before I just went and complained about it on my show. But I did complain on my show and somebody saw it. And so I got word back from Wizards of the Coast and they said, we would be happy to refund your money. And I said, that's great, but I don't want it just for me. How about everybody else? And they said, we will refund it for everybody else as well. This is the exact quote I got back from them after some emails back and forth. They did refund my money. I got it back in my account. And they said, regarding other folks who have encountered a similar situation, the support team was already instructed to process refunds of the deluxe edition pre-order for customers affected by this issue. We encourage anybody who ran into this problem to reach out to our customer support team so we can take care of the situation. So Wizards of the Coast did the right thing, which I'm very happy about. And I'm going to link down to their support form so that you can submit it if you needed to. If you didn't and you won it, it's still a cool product and I'm still going to buy it. I'm, I'm just going to buy it at my local game shop instead of buying it from them. The other thing they did, because I, I pointed out on the show that they were advertising the Lord Soth cover on their tweet about it, is they changed that. And now their marketing re rightly reflects the, the things that you're actually going to be able to get when you get your deluxe edition. So I want to thank Wizards of the Coast. I want to thank the, the, the team that reached out to me for doing the right thing and helping, helping out the customers. That's, that was really good news. Very happy, to, very happy to hear that. My friend Jeff Stevens is running a Kickstarter for a 5e adventure called Horror at Devil's Run. I backed this Kickstarter, but I did get a preview copy of the Kickstarter from Jeff Stevens so I could show it off on the show here today. I really love the work that Jeff does. I have worked with Jeff on other products. I have some of my material are in some of Jeff's bigger conglomerations of work that he's done, but he's also interested in doing these like short, quick adventures that you can just pick up and run. The price is really great. The basic backer is $4 for the PDF version of it. Very reasonably priced. And it is a single session horror themed adventure. Lots of good instructions for how to run the adventure. Here it is, the adventure background. Easily dropped in any campaign, small farming village named Devil's Run. Old Pete Barker, a pumpkin farmer for many years, difficulty growing pumpkins. Pete doesn't have ample water supply. Unlike Molly Sims, his primary rival. Old Pete fixes, uh, fixated on winning the grand prize, made a deal with a dark force, and he became like a pumpkin person. And so you're fighting lots of pumpkin stuff. What I dig about this is like, I think it'll be out in time for Halloween. And this looks like a really 
fun Halloween one-shot kind of adventure. Really good design, really excellent layout. He commissioned art, yeah, good, good solid commissioned art. I really, I like the theme, I like the look. For $4, it's a steal. $4 for the PDF, it's an absolute steal. Really good, you know, good maps. It includes maps in the in the pack. Lots of good artwork. Not not huge, 30, 36 pages, so not tiny, but that also includes the, the monster listing. Maps by Saga McKenzie. You can see the you know, map, maps in here. And really good, just good, solid D&D adventure. I love products like this. I love like straightforward D&D adventures. You pick it up for four bucks, you can run it. Got stuff about increasing the difficulty, but I really the art is is what really stood out to me. I love like some of the art that he has for 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 people in here. Yeah, like that the pumpkin terror, right? Really great. The sham, look at the art for the shambling mound. It's like a pumpkiny shambling mound. Vine hounds. So really good art. Here are some tactical maps that you can use, or, or these are village maps, not not quite tactical maps. These are more sort of tactically maps. There's there's definitely a tactical map. These are all included in the package as well. Ugh, there's like tentacles in the center. Really great stuff. Excellent, excellent, uh, uh, excellent Kickstarter, excellent product. He's, you know, you can see it like this. You can tell he's already pretty close to done. So this is a safe Kickstarter to back. I backed it without without hesitation. He has Roll20 and Shard. He's got a bunch of different ones for different tabletops. I think that's really, really strong. You can get combinations. The mega PDF includes, oh, this is where you get Pop-Bellied pop Kobold, Guide to Villains and Lairs, and the original Pop-Bellied Kobold. So he's including some of his other products. As a bonus, you receive the option to print both the premium color and standard color softcover books at special prices using DriveThruRPG's print-on-demand services. So you can get print-on-demand, and that is included with your $4 purchase. So that's, that is really cool. I'm very excited for that. We also have another Kickstarter is Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim. If you're familiar with the Drakenheim Kickstarter, it's a great big Kickstarter. The Dungeon Dudes is the group that put it out. It was kind of powered by Ghostfire Games, who is an incredible marketing force and an incredible producer of RPG products. And where Horror at Devil's Run is a very small focused, here you get an adventure that you can run in a single session. Drakenheim's Kickstarter is this enormous enterprise where you have miniatures, you have slipcase boxes, you have boxes of cards, you have dice, little dice carriers. So they put everything in there in, in these Kickstarters. Tremendous amount of stuff. I backed the PDF of this. I think that if in, in if I am to run Drakenheim, I would definitely want a physical version. But right now, I don't know that I'm going to be running Drakenheim anytime soon. So I'm, like, I'm going to stick to the PDF. But I know that the PDF is going to be a solid product. I really looked like to the Drakenheim book. And I had no problem at all backing the Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim. This is a player guide and source book. I'm reading, I'm reading from here. Player guide and source book, which includes brand new 5e subclasses. So this is on the player focused side of things, which is interesting. There was a lot of DM focused stuff in the other book. You can see like all kinds of things. There's a new class, the Apothecary, new subclasses, new spells. A, a gazetteer, I think it is a player-driven gazetteer, so the kind of things that if your players want to get into, it is it is really, really good stuff. You have the PDF version, you have print versions with a player's guide, and it just goes on. Look at that miniature, the, the Duchess, Duchess Deep Vault. The Duchess Deep includes this huge 10-inch high, crazy Cthulhu-looking miniature that's pretty cool ghostfire has published a lot of things they have a hell of a team i've got friends that work over there and they definitely know what they're doing when it comes to putting out kickstarter so it is again another another safe kickstarter and you can check that out the link to it is in the show notes below let's talk about spelljammer spelljammer is one of those worlds where the the community of D, &D and i couldn't tell if like 
are they just griefing Wizards of the Coast? But there was always this big thing about Spelljammer confirmed that at any given announcement, they would say Spelljammer confirmed. And lots of people, I'm sure there are lots of people who legitimately wanted Spelljammer. And then I think there are people who were talking about Spelljammer because it was kind of a funny thing to talk about because Spelljammer is kind of a wacky setting. Well, whether it was griefing or not, Wizards of the Coast, in fact, did publish a Spelljammer product called Spelljammer Adventures in Space. I bought my own copy. I did not receive a review copy. This is my actual own copy bought at my local game shop. I got the special edition cover and we're going to talk all about it today. The physical, I will start with this though. The physical books are gorgeous. This is probably from a physical production standpoint, the best product I've seen from Wizards of the Coast. It is tremendous in physical production value. It is really, really wonderful. When I talk about this spotlight, I want to make sure that I'm providing value to you. If you are considering buying it, I'm hoping to give you enough information that you can make the decision on your own of whether or not you think it is worth your money. And I'm going to do that by trying to shine as clear a light on what you get and what you don't in this box set. I have read a great deal of it. I have not run it yet. I do plan on running it. I'm planning on, I have a, a every other Saturday game where I'm going to run, where I'm going to run this. I'm actually going to run another adventure first and then lead into this. I'll talk about that in the future, but that's not really important for the show. So what does this actually include? When we look at what the Spelljammer box set actually has in it, what does it really have in it? And what it has, it has new character options with new races and a couple new backgrounds. There's an issue with this, though. The character races, I'm already starting on a rant a little bit. I haven't even gotten past the first bullet, and I'm already going to start on a rant. The character races and the backgrounds that are included in this aren't really compatible with the adventure that's in the same product. Up front, the adventure states that the expectation is that your characters do not know anything about Wild Space, do not know anything about Spelljammer, and are just local adventurers in a town. In the course of the adventure, they get swept up into Wild Space and swept up into the world of Spelljammer, but they don't start there. Well, how does that work if you are an ooze person that is using one of the backgrounds where clearly you are from... Spelljammer. How does that work? Why are you in a bar with these other people that don't know anything about Spelljammer? How does that happen? It really doesn't tie a, a, a connection at all between the character abilities that are in here, the character options that are in here, and the adventure that's in the same book. So it's one thing for it not to be compatible with other products, which it isn't, but it's not compatible with itself in its own book. The other odd bit about the backgrounds. If you recall in my in my show last week, I actually took a quote that I read from Reddit, which I thought was absolutely apt when we were talking about the backward compatibility of the new core books for D&D. And they said 5e isn't even 5e compatible. This product is absolutely on board with that statement because the character backgrounds, I'm going to look at the D&D Beyond version when we're looking at it so you guys can see it. The D&D Beyond version I did get for free because I wrote for D&D Beyond a while back and I get a license that let, that gives me access to the material that they put out. So this is not a review copy. It is a copy that I get because of legacy work that I do with D&D Beyond. When you look at the character options right here in chapter one, the character options have like the astral drifter and as a background and as a feature you gain the magic initiate feat and can choose the cleric for the feat so you get cleric spells if you look at the wild spacer background you get wild space adaptation you gain toughness the tough feat from the player's handbook for free there is nothing in here about everyone else for the players who choose these backgrounds they get a feat for everyone else they don't get a feat that's that lack of backward compatibility how do i as a dm 
how do I have it where these two players who both decided that they're going to be from this background, they get a free feat. These other characters, and, and one of those is a variant human, so he gets two starting feats. But these other characters who pick these other backgrounds that make sense for them, they don't get a feat. Nothing in here about how to run backgrounds side by side. A feat is a big deal. I think getting toughness for free is a big deal. It's interesting that the player information in here is more compatible with the playtest of the next iteration than it is with the existing books. Even though it says right up front, you're intended to have the Player's Handbook Dungeon Master Guide Monster Manual. The reality is, from a background perspective, it's not compatible. It's not backward compatible. If it had a little breakout box that said, during this campaign, I think they did this in the Dragonlance Un uh, Unearthed Arcana, that if you're playing a character from with, that has a background that's not included in this, here's some feats that they can choose to tie to that background. It would have taken one paragraph to add that and it would have told you which feats that they could pick and you could go. They didn't do that. So that's where it's like, it's weird. It's really weird. Not only is it not compatible with other products, which I will dive into a little bit more, it's not even really compatible with itself. But it does include them. So if you want these character options, especially the new races, you've got the new races. But what sense does it make to be an astral elf, to pick the astral elf character race, and then play in an adventure that assumes that you're at a bar at a local village? Why the hell is the astral elf there? Definitely DMs can do a little bit of work to come up with a reason why you are a gif that doesn't know anything about spell jamming. There are certainly ways to do it. Help me out, man. I paid 70 bucks. How come I don't have a list that tells me how to use these races in my own adventure that you put in the same box? What else do you get? You get Spelljammer ships and artworks. A lot of these. There's a lot of ships and a lot of, you know, details about the ships. Here's Spelljamming Vessels. And a good deal of the, of the book. There are three different books that come in this set. One of them is the Astral Adventures Guide. This is a book that's intended to be handed over to players. The idea is you hand this over to players. And it has pages and pages and pages of ships. It's got all the new races. It's got the new backgrounds. It also includes a map of the Rock of Brawl. It includes a description of the Rock of Brawl. I think that's in here. And it's got a lot of pages of ships. Here are examples of the kinds of things. It's got their armor class, hit points, their size, damage thresholds, all that sort of thing. It has maps for every one of them. It has artwork and maps for every one of the ships. That is really great. So you're getting a big pile of spell jamming ships and artwork for spell jamming ships that you can use in your game where the characters are running around either seeing or using spell jamming ships. A good deal of the 64 page Astral Adventures Guide is devoted to these ships. And I think that that's probably important. I think that having descriptions of these ships is very nostalgic because the old version had these and you can just see i'm just scrolling through showing all this art is you know boy i'm going to talk about the art in a little bit lots of different ships so you get you get lots of that stuff there are limited fuzzy rules for combat with not a lot of crunch this is definitely a point of contention for a lot of people i've read i've, I've listened to other youtube reviewers i've read a lot of reviews and many people are upset with the fact that there's not a detailed system for doing ship to ship travel ship to ship combat and a lot of details like what should the characters do on these ships while they're closing in and getting involved in combat the adventure describes how to handle combat but really it comes down to wing it get to the point where the sh where, where you're back to the characters jumping on board boarding other ships and dealing with that because that's where dnd is i tend to think i'm i'm not as upset about not having ship combat rules because dnd to me is generally a game about adventures going on adventures i don't really want a lot of subsystems for that many people did and for those people that wanted it they didn't get it and they're disappointed and they're absolutely 
in their rights to be disappointed. That doesn't bother me as much as some of the other things that I'm bothered by because I'm good. I, I, I like to handle that in the abstract anyway. I don't feel like I or my players, I mean, some of my players would probably be happy with it, but I don't want to run detailed ship combat. Now, it's, it's interesting that they created miniatures for ships, that WizKids was commissioned to make miniatures of the ships. And there's no real combat system to handle ship-to-ship combat other than they're 200 feet away, you can fire a cannon at them. There's lots of like little odd bits. And other, other podcasts, other videos go much more in-depth into the lack of ship combat rules and detailed ship stuff. I'm not a detailed guy. I don't care. I want to, I hand wave it. I'm like ships, you, your ships go in, you fire cannons, they smash into the sides and they go, and then you get down to using characters because character D and D character driven mechanics have been refined for 50 years. Spelljammer ship stuff hasn't really been refined nearly as long. We really haven't seen much. So you don't need much. I did hear some people say that one of the things they did is they took the ship combat rules that were in the Unearthed Arcana that came out before Ghost of Saltmarsh and they used those and those actually work pretty well. So that's an option for you. The thing is there's lots of options and I'm sure there are people that are going to come up with good systems for doing ship to ship combat and you can buy them. The reality is if you wanted that and you thought your $70 was going to give it to you, you shouldn't feel like you have to buy another supplement to fill in a hole. That is a hole. It's a hole for some people. Not really a hole for me. It has a description of the Rock of Brawl, which is a Spelljammer Haven. That is pretty much the only location, detailed location description that exists anywhere in the series is the Rock of Brawl. And it's relatively abbreviated. It's like, here's this starting town. It's cool. The Rock of Brawl is really cool. It has a very nice map that has both sides of the Rock of Brawl on either side. So you could do a lot with the Rock of Brawl, but there's not a lot of like adventuring options there. There's not a lot of story hooks, adventure hooks, the kinds of things you would want to make that a living place that's useful. That's not really, that's not really there. You get a fifth to eighth level episodic adventure called the light of Xeraxis. It is a 64 page adventure. It starts at fifth level. It gets characters to eighth level and it, it begins in a bar on a, on a town that's in a lakefront. It does describe in the adventure. It talks about how to kind of get started. It says like, well, you can get started if you use Lost Mine of Fandelver. I've already complained all about how, why are you connecting everything to Lost Mine and Fandelver right after putting it out of print? But they describe it in here. They say, oh, you could also start it off of the other one. If you use Lost Mine of Fandelver, the starter set, or Dragon of Icefire Peak to get them to fifth level, Light of Xeraxis begins in the same region featured in those, the Sword Coast. The city of Neverwinter, one of several major ports, could easily be where the characters. So it's like, that's great. It doesn't start in Fandelver, so it's not really, you got to somehow get your characters from Fandelver to Neverwinter or to some other city. You know, there's different places that you could do it, but it doesn't fit perfectly, and the level range doesn't fit perfectly. What's really interesting to me is it doesn't fit with Stormwreck Isle at all. They don't mention Stormwreck Isle. So the brand new starter set that's going to be av available to everybody next month there's no connection between Stormwreck Isle and this adventure, and there's a whole level missing. The adventure itself is a Flash Gordon, it's inspired by Flash Gordon, and it really, in my opinion, grasps that idea and runs with it. And it's, it's very cool. It's a much more linear adventure than I would say other adventures are. It's, got, it's a story-focused adventure. It's very episodic. It's meant to be played in two to three hour chunks from fifth to eighth level. So there's 12 different chapters 12 different sections of this adventure each intended to be played in about two to three hours so there's small tv episode style adventures there's a big strong start there's a big hairy conclusion really fits that style well and I, i'm looking forward to running i am going to run this and i'm looking forward to running it it looks really cool it looks like it really grabs the idea of Spelljammer and runs with it and i'm excited to do that i'm, I'm very excited to run the adventure i've read it but I didn't dig into details. There looks like there are some sort of convoluted parts where the characters are sort of forced down in one particular direction or where they have to come up, they have to come to the conclusion that a bad situation is going to be bad no matter what they do. 
there's little tricky bits with that. But I think that generally it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun and I'm looking for it. I like that style. I like the episodic style. I like that it's very easy to read. It's very short. It's very direct. I really dig that. It reminds me a lot of Dragon of Ice Spire Peak in the economy of the writing. And, and, I, and I applaud it for that. And so that's something that you get with this book that I really dig. I think the adventure is really good. It has a couple of descriptions of different wild space locations. I think Doom Space and Zaraxxus Space. And they're about one or two pages. And the adventurer's guide says, if you want to make your own wild space things, use those as examples of what to build. That's not really helping me out. But we'll get to that in the stuff that's missing. But it does have a couple of those descriptions. And those descriptions are in the adventure book. They're not in another book. So it's easy to overlook them. You get a DM screen. Very cool DM screen. It's got a picture of a dead god on the front. Where's the dead god? Cool, cool. There's there's the DM screen. Dead god. You know, really neat stuff. It does have like encounters in wild space, things you would run into in wild space. That's really useful. That's actually in the book as well. Shipboard tasks, things that you could do on your ships. This, the DM screen actually has some of the things that people were complaining about not having in the main book, which is like, what should I be doing while I'm spending time on the ship? But it doesn't have any details for ship to ship combat. It just has like starting distances and stuff. But still getting a DM screen inside your package, you can tell why the retail, the retail price of this is $69.99, $70 for the, for the retail price and all fits in its nice cool slipcase. you got the rocket brawl poster map so there's a poster map in there it has a 64 page book of monsters in it spell jammery monsters we will refer to them as a fair number of monsters i don't i don't know exactly how many monsters are included in here but a good a good number of them many of them are very cool i i like the style they definitely fit the they they definitely fit spell jammery stuff I still feel like something is going on in Wizards of the Coast internal design where they're making strange choices about where to put powerful, dangerous monsters. And the example I bring up is like, you have, there are certain monsters. We're going to look at like the Astro Elf. You have the Astro Elf Warrior, who's a challenge rating three monster that does 32 points of damage, makes two longsword attacks. I know I'm just picking on stuff. So keep in mind, I have certain things that I look for. Everybody looks for different things. This is one of the things I look at. I look at a challenge rating of a monster and I look at how much damage it does. Those are two things because I know like that's a thing where the, the, where things diverge. Seems like a solid CR three monster, 16 AC, 58 hit points. It's a little low on hit points, but you know, that might make up for the fact that it does 32 damage. And it does, you know, it does not wear a shield. So that means it can multi, it can attack with a two-handed weapon most of the time when it's attacking. And it does six slashing damage and 10 radiant damage on each hit. 32 points of damage at CR three. 32. To give you an idea, that would mean that a pit fiend should do 210 points of damage around. They don't do 210 hit points of damage around. So I'm like, wow. That guy's going to hit like a freight train. That's going to kill people. This guy's going to knock some people away. CR3, really hard. Now, maybe you want like powerful CR3s. Cool. Hits really hard. Same thing, longbow attack and do a range attack. Now, it's attack bonus. Like a plus three is low. And plus four is low for a longbow for a CR3 because its dex is low. I don't know why that's so low. Why is its wisdom so high and its dex is low? I don't know. Low attack bonus, lots of damage. Then you look at, oh, that's cool. What about the ancient lunar dragon? CR 19, 300 hit points, AC 18. All these work really well, right? Multi-attack, 14 damage does 15 plus seven cold. Okay, all right, that's not bad. You probably do a little bit more cold, but that's okay, claw. Cold breath weapon, exhales DC 21, 36 points of damage. 36 that's crazy crazy low it should be twice as that 
It should be 72 points of damage. This, you, you remember we were talking about like why the, in the current playtest monsters don't critically hit. And the argument was because they have recharge abilities and those recharge abilities are like critical hits. This does way less than if it just did normal attacks. Here's the really weird thing. The ancient lunar dragon deals 36 points of cold damage on its breath weapon, which is about half of what a dragon, an ancient dragon normally does. Then you go to the adult dragon, DC 18, also does 36. All that time, it's not getting any stronger in its breath weapon. What's going on with that? Some, there, I swear, we're going to find out one day, 30 years from now, there's going to be a, there's going to be like a tell-all book about D&D. And they're going to be like, yeah, it turned out our spreadsheet had like a wrong cell. Like the equation in one of the cells was wrong the entire time we were doing fifth edition. And monsters that hit CR 11, it just tailed off on their damage. What are you talking about? 36 damage. A challenge rating six mage has cone of cold. Guess what that does? 36 damage. What's up with that? I, I, I don't get it. And, and, and I know, so I've had people in Discord that say, hey, look at all the other stuff it gets. Look at all the other damage it does. It does tail attacks, treacherous sights. It's got this phase ability. Its defensive capabilities are really high for CR 19. So that means its damage has to be lowered to make up for that. I don't care. What I care about is a dragon breathing and having players go, oh man, that was nothing. 36. Why, you know, that's what I, it's a dragon's breath weapon. Get rid of dragons, get rid of some of its defensive capabilities and give it a breath weapon that feels like an ancient dragon. Ancient dragons should not be breathing for 36 points of damage. Mike Shea's fix, double the damage of the breath weapon. One of the other monsters they have is a vampire. And I love, and when, as soon as I heard vampire, I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. I love vampires. And I'm always interested to know what they do with vampires. And like, how do they, what does a new vampire look like given the kind of the new style that Wizards of the Coast is doing for monsters? And so here's an example of a vampire. It's CR, it's challenge rating two. So pretty low, 42 hit points. They got rid of its regenerate. They got rid of the stuff about the sunlight problems. And they're just like, it's just, it explodes when it dies and does necrotic damage. Cool. As spider climb. Cool. I'm actually pretty good simplifying vampires down and just abstracting the stuff that like we know it in lore that they do certain things they sleep in coffins sunlight hurts them all that sort of stuff but we're not going to put that in the stat block what weirds me out is you have energy drain is their attack a plus four to hit one creature 11 necrotic damage and then this part a humanoid reduced to zero hit points by this attack dies and instantly transforms into a free willed shadow you have a challenge rating two monster that does 11 damage and if it drops you to zero you die Imagine putting this ability on high-level monsters. People would freak out. If you had Balors that said, if this sword attack drops you to zero, you're beheaded. That would be pretty cool. That would fit a Balor. But people are like, oh, that's not fair. You can't do that. Just instant killing people. They're doing it at challenge rating two. Every one of the vampires has this, right? Challenge rating six. It's also weird that they only, they only get one attack, even though they're high challenge rating. I guess it's because they're so deadly. But think about how swingy that is. That's so tremendously swingy, right? This guy, CR6 vampire 85, 85 hit points, plus six to hit, eh, 22 damage. That's not nothing, but that, that's low damage at CR6. But 22 damage is a lot. And 22 is definitely in the realm of dropping you to zero if you're already low because a three different ancient lunar dragons breathed on you and you took some damage. A humanoid reduced to zero dies instantly. So if these guys hit you and drop you to zero, you're dead at relatively low challenge ratings. That feels really, really swingy to me. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to have one of my players who's just happens to get attacked by a 2d10 and I happen to roll 20 and they only had 19 hit points and now they're just dead in the middle of our Spelljammer adventure. That seems really, really lethal. And they're doing that at challenge rating too. How come you can't jack that stuff up and put it on the CR 16s? 
How come some of the high CR monsters don't have more instant kill? That's where you need the instant kill stuff because they just, they resurrect like crazy. They're just dropping stuff all over the place. But the idea that people are just killed, it's weird to do that at challenge rating too. And then not put things like that, th those sort of really, really lethal abilities and put them on your high challenger. Instead, it's like, well, we will be careful. You know, we want to be nice to our challenge rating, our, our level 18 characters and only breathe on them for 36, which by the way, they're going to get rid of one paladin spell and, and it's all negated anyway. I found that really strange. Something's going on in Wizards of the Coast monster design, and I'm not happy about it. And honestly, it doesn't make me really confident about what the monsters are going to look like in the next version of D&D. I think I'm going to be disappointed. I hope I'm not. I really hope I like them. I, the, the trend of, of how things have been going with monster design in Wizards of the Coast is not good. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm cherry picking stuff and I'm pick, not only am I cherry picking the monsters I'm looking at, I'm cherry picking the specific things about those monsters that bother me. And I know I'm narrow in this. I know that this may not be everybody. And if you love the new monsters and you think that they're exactly right and you think high CM, CR monsters are definitely a good challenge. Great. I was wrong about the Vecna stat block. I thought the Vecna stat block looked like it was too weak. And then I had multiple friends that ran it for one shot high 20th level games and they wiped out their 20th level parties. So maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe they are deadlier than they seem. It just feels like all the deadliness is on the low level CR, on the low CR monsters and all of the, the high CR monsters are just weak. So that's something I really hope. Check that spreadsheet. Look at it. Somewhere there's a cell that has the wrong equation in it. Fix that cell and get the monster damage so that it scales up the way character damage does. Especially if you're giving feats at level one. And, and don't even get me started about not critting. You know, here's a good reason why you don't want a monster to crit. I'll tell you. All right, fine. We'll look at the space clowns. I don't even think I looked at the space clowns. I was so not really that interested in space clowns. Does he have like a joy buzzer? 17 damage. Ray gun. So they are CR2. Okay, they're low level. Low CR. Drops to zero, pops like a balloon, splash of putrid corrosive ichor. Ew. Each creature within five, DC 12 or 10, 10 acid damage. Nice. Sque <laughs> they wear squeaky shoes. <laughs> Bonus, phantasmal form. Veils itself and everything it's carrying. An illusion that takes other objects small. So they can turn themselves, they can make an illusion of themselves as a bonus action. And they have some spell casting. They can do spider climb. It's interesting. If they can do spider climb as a spell, why not just let them spider climb? The idea that they are running around on the ceiling. I think terrifies me the most about space clowns. It's interesting that they have generally gotten away from multiple attacks for monsters for, for, you know, like a CR two, you would expect it would have a couple of different attacks or a couple of attacks per turn. And instead they're doing one attack. That's 17. I wonder if that's because in the adventure itself, you're facing a lot of these guys and it certainly makes it easier to run multiple members of these. Like you can face 12 space clowns. You're only rolling 12 attack rolls instead of 24 attack rolls. That could be a reason why. So it seems like there are certain monsters that are aiming towards you're only going to face a lot of them. You're not going to face just one or two. So that's, that's an interesting design difference that I see. I don't know how I feel about it. I think it, it works, you know, but I, I'd probably add multiple attacks if they have fewer space clowns i might give them multiple attacks but i'll tell you doubling that 17 damage is a lot for cr2 again way higher than 36 damage at cr19 just saying i know tail attacks and whatnot clown swarm they all show up in a tiny spell jamming car i'm i'm definitely interested in hearing alternative hypotheses i'm and de definitely like i don't want to just hang on to my bugaboo when the reality is it's correct it's it's appropriate it doesn't feel appropriate. And I can say as a customer, I'm not happy because when I look at high level monsters, I don't even tend to run these guys. Like who's going to run a level 19 ancient 
Lunar Dragon? Probably not a lot of people. But when I look at the n amount of damage, that's telling me a story. The numbers tell me a story. And the, the story that I hear from a 36-point breath weapon on a CR-19 Dragon is it doesn't, its breath is weak. It's just weak. And I don't think it should be. I don't, if, if you're going to put a weak thing in there, don't put it in there. You know, get rid of its breath weapon and have it do something else. Have it do a, a Lunar Nova. I don't want to hang on to my complaint too hard. I don't want to grip it and own it and not budge. I want, I want to examine it. I want to look at it. I want to figure out am I wrong. And obviously, I want to offer tools that help everybody run games. I mentioned before, the production quality on this book is the best I have ever seen from a Wizards of the Coast product. It is amazingly well put together. The paper quality is excellent. The artwork, like I can show the artwork in, in the, in the, in the, I can show the artwork on D&D Beyond. It does not compare to the artwork that's in the book. When you see some of these full page books, here's an example of like one of the pieces. When you see this piece of artwork, but you see it in a full page, full bleed version of the, in the book, I was blown away. I was like, oh my God. I immediately, I immediately took that and made it my phone's, my phone's background because I was like, that art is amazing. And it just keeps going. The art is all over the place. I just really, really... Like from a physical design standpoint, you know, the artwork and the physical product, best I have ever seen from a Wizards of the Coast product. Really good for 70 bucks. So what does it not have? I've already covered a few of these things. It doesn't have mechanics for running ship to ship combat. If that's something you were looking forward to, you're going to be disappointed. It doesn't have that in there. It has very, very vague rules about how to handle ships and DMs are going to have to wing a lot. It doesn't have any rules for the DM to build their own spell jammer adventures. I quipped early that it says adventures in space. The reality is, is adventure in space. There's only one in here. There's not enough material in here for a DM to build their own Spelljammer adventures. That to me is the bigger problem with this product. When I compare this to Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which I think is the best book that they put out last year, and especially Eberron Rising from the Last War, both of these books, and I know we've hit inflation, right? Yeah, crazy inflation. Both of these books are $50 instead of $70. And they are packed with so much material that I could build adventures for the rest of my life in those worlds. Spelljammer gives me nothing for that. And if you think about what it has, when you look at the what it, what it contains, it contains a, a book for players that offers character options and ships and a location of the Rock of Brawl. It includes a book of monsters and it includes an adventure. It doesn't have a GM guide. There's nothing in there. There's no, there's no actual material there to help GMs build stuff in Spelljammer. Now, in another world, if, it was, if this was sort of a Forgotten Realms box set, pretend, that might be okay because the Dungeon Master's Guide has lots of material to build adventures in worlds like the Forgotten Realms. But Spelljammer is so weird and it's so different. There's nothing. There's no material that exists in these books or in the core books to help you build those worlds. You'd have to buy something else. Well, guess what? If I need to buy something else, I don't need to buy this, right? Whenever I hear like, oh, and you can help in the comments, please, right? If you're going to comment on it and you're going to be like, oh, you should go buy X. That's not the point. I can fix things. I can, you know, you know what I have to do? I don't have to buy these at all. And I can make my own adventures in space. So telling me like, oh, there's lots of different ways to build your own adventures in space. Great. Don't charge me something $70 and not give that to me. So that to me is what really, to me, that's the biggest problem with this set. Once you've played the adventure, I don't think there's anything in here you're really going to use. I mean, maybe you'd use the monsters for a while, but I think what's going to happen is you're going to play this adventure and be done. I'm pretty sure once I played Light of Zaraxxus, which is a short adventure, it's not, it's not very long. Once I've run it, I'm done. And there's nothing in here to, to expand Spelljammer into other stuff. That, and when you look at Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which is a similar 
kind of product. It's about here's this whole other world of D&D, only it's got like 96 descriptions of different domains of dread. I use the hell out of that during my Wild Beyond the Witchlight game. I could take any one of those and run with them and build stuff. There's so much great material in Van Richten's Guide that lets that book last my whole life. This book's not going to last my whole life. I'm going to I'm going to run through this and I'm going to be done. That's the part of it that bothers me the most about this box set is that it lacks anything to help GMs run their own wild space and spelljammer adventures. That's a real it's a real shame. It is also the reason that I hope Wizards of the Coast reconsiders doing a box set for Planescape because Planescape could be a product that lets me build adventures in Planescape for the rest of my life. And if they did it like Van Richten's Guide, or they, especially if they did it like Eberron, like the Eberron Rising from the Last War book, if they did it like those books, those books could last forever. That Planescape book could last forever. If they do another one of these where it's like, well, here's a five level, a four level adventure that takes place in Planescape. And here's like a brief description of Sigil. And then here's a bunch of crazy monsters. And here's some weird character options that don't fit the adventure. That's gonna, you know, I don't want that. I don't want that. So I am worried about Planescape when I see this. I'm, I'm worried about Planescape following this model. And we'll see. It's a year out. So Wizards has the time to change things around. I think. I hope. They have the time to change things around and make that, make that better. You know, Wizards is not likely to be making any more Spelljammer products in the near future. They're just, they're just not. And I think that that's, I think that that's a real a real problem. It doesn't have any descriptions or generators for building your own wild space realms. Somebody asked, like, how strippable for parts is this? I would say it's harder to strip for parts. And again, I stack this next to Van Richten's guide. And I think Van Richten's guide is way, way easier to strip for parts. This one, because it's an adventure, can you strip out parts of the adventure? I mean, maybe you could grab those wild space stuff. It's certainly the monsters you could use wherever you want to use monsters. But it's not as strippable because it's really, it's really an adventure. It's really like you're paying $70 for a short adventure is what you're is what you're you're getting it's up to you to decide is that is that good wizards of the coast has really had a problem with product coordination for as long as i've been a fan of wizards of the coast and D for a long time and it, it's difficult it's because book publishing is hard and timing is hard and production costs are hard so for the whole fourth edition time they would put out adventures that would ask for like particular sets of tiles to be used but those tiles were already out of print or they would put out a book of adventures that would call for particular types of monsters but the monster miniatures wouldn't come out for three years later so there's a lot of times where this product coordination across which is the coast it's just really hard and i get it like physically manufacturing miniatures and also physically manufacturing a book it's hard to combine it together the weird bit is that this one isn't even coordinated with itself in the sense that the character options that it offers don't really fit the adventure that's included in the book but then they did a whole series of adventures called spelljammer academy these were first to fifth level adventures that took you into the world of spelljammer you started in spelljammer it does use these character options only they weren't out yet so you couldn't use them when they first released those adventures but those adventures definitely could use these adventuring options and they would take you from first to fifth level so of course you're thinking oh guess what i can run spelljammer i thought i was going to do this i can run spelljammer academy i can get everybody to run through those we'll enjoy those and then i'll jump right into light of xeraxis because it's first to fifth level for spelljammer academy and then fifth level to ninth for light of xeraxis they're not compatible at all at all if you've played through spelljammer academy 
your characters are not going to leave Spelljammer Academy, go down to some world and go to a town on a lake and not have any memory of Spelljammer or any memory of Wildspace and then suddenly be reintroduced to it. I'll give you an example where it worked really well, and that was Dragon of Ice Spire Peak. Dragon of Ice Spire Peak was a first to sixth level adventure that was included in the, in the DM Essentials kit, which is still available. It's really, really good. And they commissioned Will Doyle and Sean Merwin and James Intercasso to write three follow-on adventures that took it all the way to 12th. They knew what they were starting with. They kept the same style. You could easily take those characters and go with them. Here, it looked like they were doing the same thing. They hired a bunch of writers. They wrote some internally and they wrote some other writers to do a first to fifth level set of adventures set in Spelljammer where you can enjoy it that you would think would connect right up. They don't connect at all. It doesn't work. The amount of work a DM would have to do to get your characters from the end of Spelljammer Academy to the beginning of Light of Xeraxis is tremendous. I don't want to do work. I talk about, to me, what a successful D&D product is. To me, a successful D&D product makes my life easier and better for running D&D games. It, it helped me out. I'm paying you money to help me out. I'm, I'm paying you money to do a tremendous amount of design to make something that I can easily use at the table for my friends. This does not accomplish that. It is not compatible with other Spelljammer stuff. It's not really compatible with any other adventures. It's got incompatibilities in character creation, the background problem. I have some backgrounds that have a feat and I have other backgrounds that don't. It has compatibility problems with itself where my character races and classes that I'm using from the Astral Guide, the Astral Adventurer's Guide, they don't really support the storyline that exists in Light of Xeraxis. Something weird happened in the production of this. And it's disappointing. It's sad. Should you buy it? You now know everything I know. You know what's included in it. it like I said, it's, the, it's a beautiful box. The adventure on its own definitely looks cool. I think with a little bit of work, you can figure out some things. I think it's work we shouldn't have to do. Do I recommend it? I am not, I'm not going to give it a recommendation or not. Am I sad that I bought it? No, I am not. I'm, I am not sad. But I buy everything. I buy everything D&D makes. So I'm not sad I bought it. I think I'm going to have a good time running this for my group. I think we're going to enjoy it. I think I am going to have to do more work than I wish I had to do in order to get this adventure headed in the right direction and doing the right thing. And thus ends my spotlight of Spelljammer. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month, we have a thread up on the Sly Flourish Patreon where anybody can submit a D&D or RPG-related question, and I will answer all of them on the Patreon. Some of them I take and I put into the show notes here so we can talk about it on this show. Other ones become other videos or other articles or newsletters. Kevin says, in your Witchlight wrap-up video, you ranked it tied for second with Saltmarsh and after Curse of Strahd. If you had not included your brilliant, dreadful incursions, oh, that's brilliant. Edit that out. Brilliant. I'll just say dreadful incursions. Let's, you know no one needs to make my head any bigger. If you had not included your dreadful incursions, would you would that have changed your ranking? How much of your enjoyment was from contrasting the whimsy and the threats you introduced? This gets exactly into this philosophy that I've just been talking about. When I buy a product, if I feel like I that product gives me a lot of material to make to, to make my life easier as a DM, I'm pretty happy with it. If it does the heavy lifting for me, do the heavy lifting. I give you $50 you give me a book that helps me run your adventure. Wild Beyond the Witchlight did that. It accomplished that. Wild Beyond the Witchlight is one of the best hardcover adventures I've seen for Wizards of the Coast, regardless of Dreadful Incursions. Adding Dreadful Incursions made it that much more enjoyable for myself and I think for my players. But I, I'm not ranking it based on the idea of adding Dreadful Incursions. My, my modifications to the adventure don't change how I feel and, and where I recommend that adventure. I certainly enjoyed it more because of them. But I think that adventure with the right group and the right DM could run just as well without Dreadful Incursions and people could have a really good time. So I knew I wanted to add combat. I wanted to have a streak of darkness. 
I'm not even sure I recommend, I've, I've described in detail what dreadful incursions are. This idea that you could take the domains of dread from Van Richten's guide and sort of slide them into your Wild Beyond the Witchlight game. If you want to know more about that, there's a link in the notes below about running dreadful incursions. But I don't feel like you need to, and I think you should take a hard look at the adventure and decide for yourself if that fits the kind of style of game you want to run and the kind of style of game that you want to run with your players, that your players will enjoy. But in short, I still would rank Wild Beyond the Witchlight exactly where I ranked it, even with or without dreadful incursions. Carl says, now that you've been running Numenera slash Cypher for a bit, I'm curious about how it feels in comparison to 5e. One concern I have seen online is with skill checks requiring a bit of back and forth plus multiplying up the target value. Do you find that it's a smooth way to resolve actions in comparison to 5e? Another question, concern I have is that correlating player health with ability scores can sometimes lead to weird situations, like players effectively taking more damage to improve their dice roll than they would if they just let the hit go through. So that second one is really interesting. I, I have talked in depth about what it's like been, been running Numenera for 5e players. Uh, there's a link to the video where I go in depth and a lot of that, which I think covers the first part of that, which is the, the, the back and forth. The answer is like, you're going back and forth either way. It's just, are you doing it before the roll or after the roll? I think that the the, the idea of Numenera and that, that you, you essentially work back and forth to get the target number that you're going to have to roll in a d20 and then you roll a d20 and see if you meet it is an interesting place where it puts the die roll and it puts the die roll at the end of the equation, the end of the negotiation. It does mean that the players are, are aware of all of the DCs or all of the challenge ratings of everything that they're dealing with because they know to raise it or lower it. You tell them this is a level seven challenge. That means it's 21 or better on a D20, which means you have to lower it if you're going to make it at all. And then they come up with a bunch of reasons why they lower it to a four and a four is a 12. So that means after all 12 or better, now they got, you know, Eh, almost a 50-50 chance. I think that worked fine. The negotiation is a different style, but I like it. And I, I like it because the player, you and the players are negotiating together what the target number is. They are aware of what that number is and then they roll it and make it or not. It takes away the antagonism of a DM saying, I don't know, roll the die and I'll tell you if you succeed. It gets rid of that and I like that. The second part of the idea that players burn their resources, they have three pools, might speed and intellect, and they can burn points from those. You don't have ability scores, you have pools of points, which is sort of like physical hit points, speed hit points, and mind hit points. And you can use your 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 strength, speed, and mind hit points, your, your might, your speed, and your intellect points to lower DCs. And the point here is sometimes you will use a lot of points to lower a DC so that you make it. And it turns out you used up like seven points and the, and the attack was only for three. I think that that's part of the strategy. And I think that players, my players, have become aware of when that's the case. When you throw in things like edge and your other sort of specialties and things like that so you can lower it without spending a lot of points, or you're like, well, I only have to spend one point to lower it. A thing that the new version of Numer Numenera did is if you lower it two levels, with points, your second one is discounted by one. You only have to spend two instead of three to lower the second one, which is a complication in how it works, but it works out. So that that has not ended up being a problem. In practice and in play, it hasn't been an issue either way. Nobody's really, I've often worried that people would be disappointed if they spent a bunch of points to lower the DC and they didn't roll really high. The nice thing is most of the time when they roll high, they get like a critical effect. So they're already happy anyway. So I think they really managed to, to hit it. And a lot of my theoretical issues with the spending of hit points and and therefore essentially taking damage for damage you weren't going to take anyway that really hasn't played out in practice so i have not had problems with either of those both of those have played out with the group that i've been playing with and i've, I've got six players all different backgrounds on rpgs all very experienced many of them i think all of them are gms i think every single one of them i think everybody at the table is now a gm they gm other games and they've all really enjoyed it 
Jill W says, I'm going to be running a campaign for a bunch of newbies. I don't think the idea of a character backstory has even occurred to them. Do you have any advice on a handful of questions I should ask them about their characters just to get them thinking about their characters a little bit, but without overloading them? Or should I just forget about character backstories entirely for their first campaign? I don't think you have to overdo it. I, I think that it's it's probably worth like even just doing the traits and bonds, like flaws, bonds, and and traits, that exercise, or if they're using a pregen, having some character background written onto the pregen, like the the Dragon of Stormwreck Isle pregens have backgrounds on them. And if you want an example of the kind of backstory you you might offer to the player if they're doing pregens, I would look at the Dragon of Stormwreck Isle pregens, which are available on the Wizards of the Coast website. I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes below. And it's worth looking at those or maybe even using those and giving them that background. It's tied to Dragon of Stormic Isle. So you can offer it to them. You could give them like one line and just say, this is sort of your background and they get that idea. But but players aren't going to understand how this whole thing works at all. So trying to draw big backstories from them it may not work or it may work too well. And they'll come up with a great big detailed backstory that really has nothing to do with your adventure. So if you were going to do that, I would definitely guide the process and guide them towards recognizing that their background fits the adventure, help steer them do that session zero. If you're having them build characters, do a session zero where you're guiding their backgrounds to aim towards the theme of the adventure. I think that's highly beneficial for just about any game. And maybe offer some up, offer, offer up some backgrounds and say like, you're from this town and your father lost this sword years ago and you're hoping to get it back. And then you can make that a theme in the game. But I, I would not push them too hard. I would not, I wouldn't open it up too much and I wouldn't push them too hard. I might offer things to them to help them get in the heads of their characters, but they're not going to really understand the whole background thing. And some that do are just going to run wild and have this, you know, they're going to have a Dickens novel that they wrote. And that Dickens novel doesn't fit the theme of your pirate adventure that you were planning to run. So definitely, I think guided would be good. And you could do one, like think of like a secret and clue, write down 12 secrets and clues that are tied to the campaign and say, and, and show them to your players and be like, which one of these do you think fits your character? And you grab that one and plop it right in your character. James H says, I recently started running Call of the Netherdeep. My PCs will soon be entering Betrayer's Rise, a legendary mega death trap dungeon. But for obvious space and pacing reasons, the module has a 12 room dungeon presented. Any hints on how to make a small dungeon seem much grander without adding 200 extra rooms and dragging the dungeon out over extra 20 sessions? I've been lore dropping via secrets and clues that this place is absolute labyrinth and I don't want it to be an anti-climax. So it sounds like you, if I understand this correctly, you want to stay with the 12 rooms. You're not looking at expanding it into something more but you want them to feel like they're in this one. So scope and scale can do that a lot. You could have chambers. I don't know. I don't know what the design of Betrayer's Rise is. So you'll have to decide if you can fit this in, but giving them an idea that like they find vast shafts and they can hear echoes. Like think about Moria from Lord of the Rings and they knock a helmet and you're like, how far down that well did that helmet go? And what's down there? It echoed all over the place. So the idea that Moria is way bigger than just the few chambers that we saw, but ways to make things seem really big is like grand scale, like build it up. If they go and they see a cliff and they look out and they're like, there are hundreds of tunnels leading off in hundreds of directions. There's a weird fiery glow all the, all the way at the bottom. You can hear the sounds of machines far away. There's lots of little lore things, little, lots of little bit of flavor that you can add that makes it seem like the dungeon is way bigger than the 12 rooms you have. Then if you need to fill it out, you can do kind of what I was just doing in my lazy GM prep thing of getting a bunch of ideas for chambers 
and separating them from the rooms where they might find them. So if they explore off the beaten path, you can kind of pull up these the, the features of these particular chambers. I, of course, would recommend the Lazy DM's Companion, which has lots and lots of tables in it to help you fill in all kinds of dungeon chambers and all kinds of different ways that you want, along with all sorts of other things. But I think that showing it to them in flavor really works. And then if you need to fill it out, A, go to DysonLogos.com and grab a map. Dyson Logos has tons of awesome maps that you can use for any layer. You can build infinite dungeons with the stuff he's got. And then you might jot down like 10 different room descriptions that go outside of the ones that are here just to have them on hand if you think that they are going to head into new new areas. Axel C says, Teos recently wrote on AlphaStream about actionable lore. Transferring that lazy DMing could mean to only create actionable secrets. What do you think about that concept? How can you make sure the secrets you come up with stay actionable? So secrets and clues are designed to be useful to characters, useful to players, but they don't always need to be actionable. And mind, you know, I'm, who am I to argue with Teos Abadia? I don't think everything, I don't think all secrets and clues needs to be actionable. I think it needs to be relevant. I think it needs to matter to the characters. There has to be a reason why it would be interesting. Maybe it's just the history of the location that they're in. Maybe it's information about villains or previous societies. But the characters could definitely see like mosaics on the wall or old etchings or an, a strange statue of an old god that died a long time ago. And that still gives them something to hang on to. Does that mean they're going to go work against that evil god? Maybe not. It, but it means they picked up a bit of the history of the world. So I, I'm apprehensive about saying that everything needs to be actionable. But I think every Everything needs to be relevant. I think that, that that relevancy is important. It can matter to them. It's something that they're doing. Now, it could be just filling out the world. It's just what you're doing is you're taking all, potentially taking all of this lore that exists for this world that otherwise the players are never going to know, and you're making it relevant to the characters so they can see it. And that, I think, can be really enriching. I think it can really fill out a world and really fill out the details of the world and make it feel real to the players because their characters are seeing it. So to me, the, the big definition of like, how do you define a secret and clue is a secret and clue is a piece of information that the characters can learn in the next game that matters, that is relevant to them, and that you're not deciding where they're going to find it. I change that definition a little bit every time, but I think that it, you know, in the, in the return of the lazy dungeon master, it says that, that the, the secrets and clues need to be something that is re relevant to the characters, relevant, something that matters. It's not, and like what wouldn't matter. And, and, you know, I guess like a piece of probably lack of detail would matter if you're like, well, you see a strange face on the wall and it looks very old. Well, that doesn't matter. No one knows what it is. But if you say like, it is the strange half and half face of a God of neutrality that used to be worshiped but the followers all died long ago and now the god is a decaying husk out in the astral sea well that's well, that's interesting you know and they might grab onto that and be like i want to learn more i want to become a follower of this god i want to bring it back to life you never know what's going to be relevant but i think like detail matters and relevance matters and certainly you want to lean towards the secret and clues that are going to help propel the game forward and i think that's what Teos is really talking about is give them lore that helps push the game forward but sometimes it is okay to just give some lore that fills out the world a little bit that lets them know about this dungeon that they're in that just gives them a touch of it you just don't want to give a lot of it you don't want to give pages and pages of it you don't want here's like five pages of background on this dungeon give them one sentence 
that tells them a little bit about why this dungeon exists and who built it and why. My friends, I want to thank everybody for hanging out today. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. The link is in the notes below. When you subscribe, you will get a weekly D&D related email sent directly to your inbox, along with a free dungeon adventure generator PDF. You can pick up any of my books in the Sly Flourish bookstore. The link for that is in the show notes below. You can join the Sly Flourish Patreon, where you get access to all kinds of guides to help you run your game, adventures that you can run, city source books, a dedicated Discord channel, and the Patreon monthly Q&A. You can also help send this video out to your friends, share it on, on Twitter, like it on Facebook, add a comment, subscribe to the channel, all that kind of good stuff. Doing so helps get the word out for, for the work that I do here. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.